episode 47, Patrick speaks with Dakshita Karana of the University of Illinois. Among other topics, the team discuss theoretical cryptography, multi-party computation, and simulation in cryptography. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Entangled Things. Uh, today, I'm I'm without my wingman, Cyprian, but uh, it's made up for by an excellent guest in an area that I'm very fascinated with. Dakshita, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Sure. Um, hi, my name is Dakshita Kurana. I am an assistant professor of computer science at uh, the University of Illinois. Um, my research up until two years ago was exclusively focused on classical cryptography. Uh, more recently, over the last two years, I've become very excited by the prospects that quantum information brings um, to security and cryptography. And so that's what I've been exploring more recently. Uh, in addition to, of course, also continuing to work on classical cryptography. Um, I'm a theoretical cryptographer, so my research is mostly about understanding what types of security properties uh, are feasible and what are properties that we cannot ever hope to achieve. Um, and yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a security person, so this is this is absolutely great for me. Um, so th- there's a few ground rules I'd like to explain to everybody who doesn't know what you know, um, or even, you know, approach what you're talking about, but it's a good prime primer. So quantum represents a, a mortal threat to asymmetric encryption, RSA, Diffie-Hellman, elliptical curve, which are everywhere on the internet in communications. They're even built in the signal WhatsApp. Um, and there's just so much risk there. Now the risk is being diminished by some people who say, oh, this is decades away. And others who, like me, say, uh, probably, but but it might be closer. And so we really don't know. And one of the threats that we hear about in in the business world and in the, in, the, um, in the military as well is that it's possible to gather this data encrypted and then decrypt it later with a quantum computer. And so people are being advised. And NIST has these, um, these um, guidelines that they're publishing. They just published one in July. And it seems like the big winner is lattice, um, in, lattice encryption, and that will be a um, the heir apparent to RSA probably. Um, and but but it's still going to be a bumpy road. But is is lattice the new the new hotness, the new thing that uh, we should if we want to know about encryption, we're not going to talk about RSA as much, and we're going to talk about lattice. Or are there other contenders that might still work their way in? Right. So. When it comes to asymmetric asymmetric cryptography, which is what we use for all public key communications, so these are settings where um, you want to communicate with someone who you've never met before and would still like to securely send messages to them over the internet. Um, in all these settings, um, what you really need is asymmetric cryptography. And <clears throat> a lot of existing asymmetric infrastructure, like you said, builds on uh, RSA, Diffie-Hellman, which can all be theoretically broken if you had a quantum computer with sufficiently many qubits. Um, now, and again, like you said, we don't really know how far away those are, but it makes sense to try to be prepared. And um, 
And in that direction, people have looked at uh, crypto systems that rely on other types of mathematical hardness assumptions. Um, and these, so far, uh, are not believed to be br broken quantumly. So it is believed that quantum computers will not really give us a significant advantage in breaking cryptography that's based on these alternative assumptions. Um, like you said, lattices is one class of assumption that has become very prominent in the last few um, years. Uh, there's other alternatives that people, people also look at. Um, those rely on certain types of coding schemes um, that you know, I'm not really going to get into the tech, technical details of. Uh, but yeah, Understood. coming back to lattices, I think that that's one of the most prominent alternatives that's being looked at um, and as as something that we should begin transitioning to. Yeah, NIST, NIST in July said that um, Crystals Kyber, uh, which is out by crystals.org, will be, is their final candidate. It's the only candidate that made it to the finals um, for key encapsulation mechanisms. And so just to reiterate uh, in layman's terms, so if you and I want to talk secretly in a public channel, we need a we need something to do the encryption. And if you and I know that it's uh, the password is Rosebud, then that's fine. Then we can do that encryption. But that requires we both have shared a secret. So asymmetric is the way that that secret is shared if we don't have the ability to meet and, and pre-share a key. And so it's the precursor of all encrypted com communication on the Internet and, you know, encrypted emails and things like that. So it's woven in. But contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not the way asymmetric encryption is not the way that files are encrypted. Asymmetric encryption only encrypts small bits of data, just enough for us to exchange that key. And so it's important, but some people mistakenly think, well, I know that shared key encryption is not under threat and we, we encrypt our files with shared key. So it's, it's safe, but they're missing the fact that that initial shared key is the, is the problem and it makes everything else open. And so um, Crystals uses a lattice, a mathematical lattice of multi-dimensions, which, you know, if you think more than three dimensions, it blows my mind a little bit. But the idea is that you, there's lots of things you can do if you have a defined lattice. And so the simplest lattice would be 1-1, one, one, where every point, every whole number in a lattice, think of like a, a, a Rubik's Cube, all the, the, the joints of the Rubik's Cube would be a point in that lattice, and it goes on to infinity. Um, so I can then take a random point that's not on the lattice, like 15,795,000.3225. And now the hard part is, okay, what's the nearest point in the lattice to it? Well, in two dimensions, three dimensions, it's easy, but in 150 dimensions, then, then, you know, most people can't do it and most computers can't do it. And so, um, what we're we're looking at is how do we use that and and the the thing that trips me up is i understand you know the the nearest point but there's something called uh learning with errors that that's in the specifications that's in the the talks and quite frankly it loses me every time is is that something you can like simplify or just kind of summarize yeah so um learning with errors is one abstraction of a problem that makes it very easy to build crypto systems. And we believe that learn, the learning with errors problem is hard for quantum computers. Um, let me describe the problem. So um, suppose you had a system of linear equations in, so n equations in n variables. 
Um, it turns out this is easy to solve. Even for n equals you know, 256, it turns out you can easily run Gaussian elimination on a computer and you pretty easily get a solution uh, to like linear equations. Uh, learning with errors, on the other hand, is the problem of solving noisy linear equations. So if I give you these same equations, but then I change the output a little bit, I add a randomly sampled small noise to every output. Um, so you know, on the left-hand side of the equation, you have uh, coefficients attached to every variable. and So it's like changing the wave of each wave slightly. Yes, yes. Because each form, each, each equation, each... Each linear equation is a waveform, basically. It describes a wave, and you're just wiggling it a little bit. That's right. That's one nice way to visualize it, is that you're changing the um, correct answer to the equation by just a small um, error perturbation. And um, it turns out, if you do this, and if the errors are unknown, then it's hard to find solutions. Um, despite the fact that you may have more equations than the number of variables. So without errors, this would have been incredibly easy to solve, but it's just adding these small errors to it makes it hard to solve. Now, there still is a unique solution. It's just hard to find. And it's, it's, the, the, it's the amount of error you introduce that is the shared secret, that is the, is the secret sauce, is the, the decryption variable. So the amount of error you introduce uh, is proportional to how secure your system is. The more error, the harder it gets to break or that's that's kind of what we believe at least and the secret is this solution to the system of equations and the fact that you have errors makes it hard to recover this secret um, unless you know unless you already know what it is and that's what ensures security against an adversary that's trying to eavesdrop on the network well how do you so I guess I'm trying to understand. Is it like Diffie-Hellman in that we both contribute a portion of the error? So I know my portion of the error, you know your portion of the error, and therefore they're they're summarized to make the, the full error. And that way I can know the solution and you can know the solution, even though we haven't communicated our parts of the error. Right. So that's not exactly how it works. Uh, think of it as one of the players publishes a public key on their website. This public key is contains these um, uh, contains the output of the system of equations, um, or contains an erroneous output of the system of equations, and any third party that looks at this key can sorry that looks at this public key can use this to set up a shared secret key and. You can think of it as the other party contributes some randomness, but not really yeah. the error. The error is coming from one party. It's more like randomness coming from the other one. So the error will always be the private key. So your private key will be the error. Your public yes. key will be the the formula with the error calculated in. Yep. And then I can send the message encrypted with that error, that public key, but you're the only one that will be able to actually deduce it out. That's exactly right. Yes. Wow. I mean, a very okay. high level, obviously, but yes. <laughs> I, yeah, but it's, it's, it's amazingly, it's amazing how much I've searched for this many times now. Uh, and I, I can't, I, I can't stay awake long enough to listen to the, the lectures. They're so not getting to the point, but this was very clear. I really appreciate it. So is this where, 
what are you exploring now? What do, what is your area of interest right this second? Um, so yeah, let me answer, let me answer that by building on something you said a few minutes ago. You said sure. that it's it may be possible right now to gather all these ciphertexts, all this encrypted data that we're sending. And then once we have the capability, the quantum capability to break encryption schemes, we would be able to extract all sorts of secrets that were exchanged, you know, that are being exchanged at this point in time. Um, and so I've been looking at using quantum information to build new types of crypto systems. Um, one work that I'm particularly excited about is uh, cryptography that enables deletion of information. Um, it allows us to build ciphertexts that can be deleted by using specific properties of quantum information. And that would prevent these types of attacks like the ones you said, where you know, someone just gathers all ciphertexts for all perpetuity. And you know, with classical information, there's absolutely no way to delete it. If I give you a ciphertext and then I ask you to delete it, there's no way I can check that you deleted it. But with quantum information, this amazingly becomes possible. So I've been looking at exploring wow. how quantum information can interplay with cryptography to enable provable deletion of information. Oh, that's very interesting. Because, I mean, that's been, if you look at things like Signal, Signal's the most, um, considered the most secure, the gold standard in in, in uh, communication messaging. And one of the things that their hallmark is that they'll delete it. But you're trusting Signal to delete it. It's not built into the technology. And and one of the things that makes Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies so um, so interesting is that we don't have to trust anybody it's it's you know in god we trust everyone else we double check so does that have anything to do with um some of the papers that i think you you that i've seen you talk about is um the multi and i think i'm probably saying this wrong um multi-party computation exactly multi-party computation thank you um and is that related to homomorphic encryption is that another way of saying homomorphic encryption? Uh, homomorphic encryption is one way we can do multi-party computation. So, okay. I mean, so it's a subcategory. Yes, yes. Um, okay. The, the should, end- we should define that real quick, if you don't mind. So homomorphic of encryption, of course, and if I, get, if I butcher this, please correct me. Um, homomorphic encryption is an encryption type that allows you to do analysis on encrypted data without decrypting it. And so it's very in vogue with the healthcare industry right now so that I can have patient information and I can let a third party who doesn't have HIPAA rights to the data do analysis on the data and still come up with conclusions without actually reading the data, which I think is sounds like magic to me. But um, so that's one form of this. And it that's super convenient. That's super you know handy. Are other forms of multi-party encryption have the same kind of benefits? Yeah, what you just described, this ability for um, someone that does not have access to plain text data to still be able to compute on encrypted data and derive outcomes, Um, this in general, like a a broad generalization of this is multi-party computation. So definitionally, multi-party computation just says, uh, you know, there's a group of players that don't trust each other but they all have their own private data that they'd like to combine and compute on, except they can't share it with each other or with any other third party. Um, multi-party computation gives them a way to jointly compute functions on their like joint data without having to disclose it to each other and while only recovering the output and learning no other information. 
Um, so, so intellectual yeah. property could be protected, but it could still be shared. Yes. Yes, indeed. Oh, and that's interesting. This is also useful in healthcare settings, as you just mentioned. It's, it's found a variety of applications. In fact, I know there are startups now that are trying to bring this technology into, um, into like industry. Um, and homomorphic encryption is just one way that you can enable this sort of uh, multi-party computation. Wow. That's pretty cool stuff. And anything we should be looking for in the near future? Is it, is it a fast-moving area or is it a slow-developing area? That's a great – so this, this – the, the, the area of multi-party computation or the fact that this is possible even uh, has been known for more than 30 years now. Um, but it's more in the last 10 years that we have figured out that this is actually something that's not just a theoretical possibility – but it's something that may be viable commercially. And so over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of activity that has made multi-party computation really efficient. Um, and you know, the gold standard is to try to get to the same level of efficiency that you would if you had all the data in the clear and if you had no privacy restrictions. Of course, we're not there yet, but we are getting um, to levels where this is a reasonable option in situations where privacy is important, like healthcare settings and you know, we even have companies now trying to share customer data with each other and doing joint analytics on it um, without, you know, while still um, adhering to privacy uh, regulations. So I, I could see this having a very wide ranging. Uh, I, I'm an ex-military person, so excuse the military analogy. But um, if I had a, a coalition of nations that that working together on something big that needed intel intelligence to be shared. One of their biggest problems is they don't want to give away the intelligence, but if they could contribute statistical insights to build a model without revealing their data, or even that they were the ones that input that data, then that could change. That could be game changing. Interesting. Yeah. So you oh, can okay. do all these things. I mean, at least theoretically, you can even do this without revealing who input the data. I'm not sure if people have tried to make that commercially viable yet. Um, wow. Well, and, and, and is this, um, is this something that, you know, you're doing as part of, uh, I know you teach at, at the university as well. Um, is, are you going to be introducing courses on this or you're still just in the early phases of figuring it all out? Yeah. So I've actually taught courses on quantum cryptography, on cryptographic protocols, and a lot of the focus was on multi-party computation. So I have taught yeah. some of this. I also do research in this area. Um, tying back to like the fact that quantum information can help delete stuff, uh, we've realized that that particular feature of quantum information can also help build new types of multi-party computation protocols, where you do share information, but then make sure that it's encrypted in such a way that it can be deleted later on. And so people don't end up learning more than they're supposed to. Um, so you're in one of those really good spaces because encryption and cryptography still matter and and it doesn't depend on the quantum computers getting to a certain level but it's going to be enhanced what you're trying to do is enhanced as they get bigger and better and so you're on one of those bubbles where um you can do your work without waiting for the quantum computers to catch up to where you want to be that's awesome that's right and actually some of the protocols that exist and that we build um use really simple quantum information so like BB84 states, which is something, sorry, we haven't defined yet, but that this is something that we know exists. So, 
we had a show on BB84 where Mayor Cyprian and I talked about what it was and how it works. So uh, you just gave us a good call back. You know, we'll, we'll post a link to that show if, if unless I'm mistaken. And that was a dream. Um, super interesting. So it is is this something that you think you're going to be grappling with for the, the foreseeable future or are you um, are there other areas that you're uh, looking to break into? I think the most fascinating thing about theoretical research, and this is why I am in this area, is that there's like amazing new questions that come up that you know you didn't even think were possible. So you're just trying to explore possibility. Like I, I was really fascinated by this problem of how do we force someone to delete information? And you know, I was trying different things classically, it all just seemed impossible. Like there was no way to get around these very simple uh, barriers that you know, people may make copies, stash them away in hidden locations. There's no way to check. Um, well, so, so how do you deal with the fact that someone can, well, I guess, well, let me ask you this. How, how does it work? Can you give us a little overview on how you enforce in, uh, deletion through a quantum system? Yeah. So um, one really interesting property of quantum information that has no classical analog is that measurements on quantum states collapse them to a certain um, state. And that deletes, once you've measured, you've deleted information about what state that um, quantum system was in prior to measurement. Um, right. Now, then suppose we build a system where you actually check, where you try to check that someone did perform measurements on a quantum state. Um, the fact that you can check their measurement outcomes um, means that they must have collapsed the state to a certain um, new state. And then you cryptographically ensure that the new state reveals no information about the hidden secret. Um, so you've now, like, uh, information theoretically removed the secret from their view. No matter what resources they throw at it, they're just not going to be able to recover that information. Because they can't duplicate a quantum state. You can't clone, no cloning principle. You can't yes. clone a quantum state. So if the data is actually contained in the quantum state before reading, then... Before measuring. Yes, exactly. Before measuring. Uh, this creates so many questions that this would be an incredible area of ex of, uh, of exploration. Um, is it... Is there any big breakthroughs that have enabled us to get to this point? Was there some kind of realization or or discovery that that led us here or is it just we've been you've been working towards it um no I, of course there's been a sequence of really exciting works in the last few years that have uh, led us to where we are um i mean it, i think it all goes back to heisenberg's uncertainty principle which says that if you determine one one type of measurable quantity then that destroys information about the other uh, many years ago, people already asked, can you use this to get similar properties for information that's encoded into quantum states so that if you measure some one property of that information, you necessarily delete the other property. Um, now, these were questions floating around, and I don't think we've addressed them all yet. We still have many questions in the area. But over the last few years, there's been a sequence of really exciting works that try to formalize what it means to delete classical information that's encoded into quantum states. Um, and I want to like, give a shout out to this one particular work of uh, Anne Broadbent. And um, uh, so, uh, so actually, she has a sequence of works, uh, both in the deletion and unclonability regime. One is Broadbent uh, and Anne Broadbent and Rabib Islam. The other is Anne Broadbent and Sebastian Lord. 
Um, there are, so these two works introduce the concepts of um, encryption with certified deletion, which is a way to encrypt messages so that you can then ask someone that holds a ciphertext to delete it. And you can check that it was deleted. And then the, this wow. other work that introduces the concept of unclonable encryption, which builds ciphertexts that cannot be copied, um, so cannot be split into two copies, and so that both will contain the underlying hidden information. And it was really nice that these works formalize these properties because they've now led to a lot of follow-up works, including some of my work and some other work by other researchers nice. in the area that build like a whole array of systems from them, including multi-party computation schemes, advanced encryption schemes, homomorphic encryption, and so on. Wow. So it's a whole emerging area. That, and that's yeah. awesome. And, and, and again, none of it really depends on a number of qubits in a quantum processor for you to continue your research. But I assume it did require there to be some real quantum computers and we had to move beyond the pure simulation state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So just the right decade to be in. That's 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 for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, so the teaching, it, it, we one of the things that the themes that that Cyprian and I cover quite often is it's quite difficult to uh, not overwhelm people when you're teaching them about this stuff for the first time because I usually use the superhero analogy of uh, I'm going to tell you a bunch of things um, you're not going to understand them. It's like Superman flying in the movie. Just accept it and you'll enjoy the movie. If you spend the first 20 minutes of a Superman movie trying to understand how he's flying you kind of missed the point. Um, And so you're probably much more in the, you need to actually understand why this is true. Bell's theorem and and all the math, the double slit experiment. Um, There's a balance there, it seems though. And at the higher education level, is there any efforts to, to get people primers before you blow their mind, before you make them like wonder whether they're living in a simulation? Uh, is there any effort to give them an overview of quantum that doesn't include the math and science, or is that that's only for uh, for business side of people? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think that as as a department and as as a college, we are trying to develop these courses that give uh, introductory primers on quantum information. You know, through experiments that help you understand why this is a reasonable model of computation and why this is a reasonable model of physics. Um, so I think there are certainly those efforts. Um, I unfortunately have not been as involved in those just probably because mm-hmm. I started out just a few years ago. So I'm, you also yeah, sound yeah. very busy. <laughs> it's not like you're looking for things to do. Uh, no, I mean, this, this sounds like an amazing thing to try to do. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, it's just stuff going on all the time. So, um, I mean, Shakespeare said brevity is the heart of wit. So I'd like to think that the, the, the shortest conversation where somebody understands why we care about this stuff. It's, I'm always trying to get that elevator speech for quantum and superposition and entanglement. Um, and so maybe I'm a little too obsessed with it, but I'd love to see the university start with a, uh, maybe even a one hour, like this is where we're going to go with it. This is what it is. This is the primer. Right. And you know, this is superposition. We'll explain why that's true later, but it's true. This is entanglement. We'll explain why that's true, but but it works this way. And I think that that first hour, um, I've watched some of the university um, courseware that's available online from MIT and other other organizations uh, like like your own. And they're very much, here's how the math works and here's why this experiment is and here's the conclusions. And so it's great for those who are pursuing a PhD, um, but 
we need more of the masses to understand this stuff. We need business people to understand this stuff, which is, I think, where we're trying to bridge the gap here. Right. Um, no, that's a really, I think that's a space in which we should probably see more courses coming up in the near future. I, I know that there is an effort to set up these types of courses. It does require people working on the area that are familiar with it to be teaching them. So I think that's where you know, we still have like a significant We've been looking, for example, at the university to hire people that work in the space. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, yeah. so it's an ongoing effort, How I about guess. Intro introduction to philosophy and quantum computing. I think oh. that's a core. That's a one. That's a one hour seminar I would attend. Yeah, um, that, that's awesome. So um, what uh, what else should we be talking about? I mean, I could I could I, I could go back to lattice, but I, I don't want to abuse your time. But um <laughs> What what's what should we be watching for? Is this are there are there companies starting to leverage this? Are there are there conferences about this topic? What where where do you where do you think someone should go if they're if if we fascinated them with this topic? Um, is there is there a book? Is there a book outcome coming up soon that we should know about? So uh, I <laughs> uh, I would recommend. So there's a conference. Let me. Maybe start with that. There's a there's a conference called Quantum Information Processing, which is one of the premier conferences on quantum information. It features a lot of quantum cryptography research, but also more generally research in quantum information. Um, there's also quantum crypto specific venues. Uh, for example, we've recently started a workshop on quantum cryptography um, that will happen um, uh, in association with this conference called Asia Crypt. So it's, it's an Asia cryptography conference. Mm -hmm. um, there's also other uh, conferences like QCrypt and Theory of Quant Quantum Computing. Um, so there's there's a bunch of venues, I guess, to look at to, if you want to follow what's you know what's new in this area. Uh, sounds also, like an active an active community then. Absolutely. Um, there's also this um, institute at Berkeley co Berkeley called the Simons Institute that. Um, that has recently been uh, significantly, uh, you know, helping advance research in quantum information by holding workshops and seminars and gathering people there to to work together and collaborate. Um, so I I benefited immensely from this. So I want to give that a shout out. I think it's Excellent. been super helpful in getting together people from non-quantum communities like myself uh, to understand what quantum computing is and what it can bring to the table and see how it interacts with their research. Um, so I, I guess those are some venues, uh, about books. Excellent. I'm not sure. I think the, the stuff I was just telling you about is so new that I think it Papers should be a while. More. Yeah. Before we see books on it. Okay. Well, we'll try to compile a little bit of that so people can see it in the notes for the episode. Uh, sounds like a lot of information. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we call it a day? It's been a fascinating conversation for me, but is there anything you wanted to bring up? Um, I want to give another shout out to Please. some of my co-authors that have done some of this incredible research with me so that it doesn't sound like I'm the one responsible for all this. Like I have amazing collaborators and uh, students that I've worked with that have been amazing. Um, so I want to, um, you know, I want to highlight uh, James Bartusek, who's a student at UC Berkeley. He will probably graduate soon and he's amazing. He's been my co-author on much of the research that I talked about today. Um, so we've wow. developed it together and uh, it's happened because he's he knew quantum information and I've been more of a cryptography expert. And so it's been a wonderful collaboration. Um, also, 
some other collaborators, Fermima and Andrea Goladangelo, who've also taught me a lot of the quantum information that I talked about today because yeah, I was a classical cryptographer. Um, and then I want to finally just give a shout out to some of my students who've been doing some of this research with me uh, over the last year or so. So um, James Hewlett, um, Amit Agarwal, um, Nishant Kumar, and Ruta Jawale. So. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds like great, great team. And, you know, we, I, we'd love to keep hearing updates about what you guys are doing and, uh, you can bring, bring along a guest if you'd like. And, uh, it's been a great conversation for me. I, if nothing else, just the, the fact that you've peeled away some of the, the veneer on, you know, how some of this stuff works in a way that is, is comprehensible. Cause that's the, that's the key. If we can get more minds thinking about it, but first we got to get them introduced to it. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, that's, that's good. And, and being in the, an educator, I think you, you've probably seen quite a lot, uh, last question. And then, then I'll, I'll stop, uh, we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, you're teaching cryptography and quantum cryptography. What stumbles people up the most? Is it, is there a single specific concept that students typically have a, a harder time with? Yeah, so in cryptography, we have this notion of simulation. I mean, simulation is a common word in other contexts, but it means something very specific in cryptography. It means uh, it, it is an algorithm that lets you uh, simulate information for an adversary without knowing secrets. And that's a way to prove that the adversary did not learn secrets. You know, if they, if they could build up all the information that they learned from the protocol without knowing the secret, then that means they learned nothing from the protocol. So just this concept, I think, at first is... Uh, weird, contradictory, because like, what, if they participated in the protocol, how did they not learn anything from it? So I think I find that this trips people up a little bit. I've tried to figure out ways to explain it better, like spend more time. And, but I still yeah. find that it's a little counterintuitive. So, okay. Yeah. So it's like Superman flying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually use Superman flying on my slides, you know, to indicate that this is like oh. this super algorithm that you won't fully understand, but hang on and we'll nice. come back to it. So, um, All right. I feel much better about yeah. that analogy then. Yeah, I, I'm no, in good, good company. <laughs> well, it's been fabulous talking to you. I really appreciate, we, we really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this and bringing all this to uh, the general public. Hopefully we'll get more people interested. Uh, Thanks. I'm sure we will with, with episodes like this. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.